Hi, everyone. This is Sermon Smith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation. My name is John Chandler. My guest today is Kevin Sweeney. Kevin is the pastor of Imagine, which is in the heart of Honolulu. So you will hear much angst on my part, much envy on my part, even though I'm pretty happy in Austin with all the tacos we have around here. But I mean, he does sermon prep on the beach. You got to enjoy that. Imagine started a few years ago, and in many ways, even though he had a little bit of experience, Kevin talks about how he's been learning sermon prep even as he goes, but he's got a pretty well-thought-out process already. It was fun to have this conversation. So we'll jump into that here in a moment. Uh, Once again, I just want to mention, for those of you who are finding these conversations helpful, I mean, if you're still listening, I assume you're finding them helpful, but if you'd consider uh, supporting, pledging to the podcast at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SermonSmith, and that can help me continue or extend some of what's going on here, some of my time, some of the server costs. Thanks so much for considering that. We've had a few people jump on here in the last couple months. Trust me, every little bit helps. So here we are with Kevin Sweeney of Imagine in Honolulu. Kevin, you are... You're in Honolulu right now, but not only are you in Honolulu right now, you live in Honolulu, right? Or, I mean, yeah. you live you live on Oahu. Yep. I yep. assume you live, live in Honolulu. Yep, I live on Oahu and in Honolulu. So I'm, Which, I'm not only not only do I live here, but I'm also sitting here right now. So how does one come to start a church in Honolulu? Because <laughs> um, we're all taking notes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually grew up in Los Angeles and my wife and I both grew up in Los Angeles. We met when we were 16. We went to like different schools and kind of lived like 15 minutes from each other. But we both did our undergrad out here in Hawaii. So we were out here for like three to four years and then moved back to LA for a year. But we were in Costa Mesa in Orange County for five years. I think for us, like our journey back to Hawaii was kind of like this movement within us both of like, you know, it would be weird to not end up back out there just because that's where like our relationship really blossomed and grew and we got married out there. And then it kind of moved to like, man, I really, really want to be back out there to like, I don't know, I kind of feel like one, I sense this is where things are headed. But two, for us, we're always like, we just want to be there. Like, this is where we want to be for the future. This is where we want to settle roots. And then after we both finished grad school, like near 2012 when we were like getting ready to move out here we're just like hey i think this is where things are heading and also but i think for my my wife and i both were like this is also like where we want to be this is a place we love so it was kind of this interesting movement of like it would be weird to not be there and to like yeah like this is this is where it seems like this is where things are heading and this is where we want to be so there you are <laughs> so this is like basically that. the moral of that is just do what you want. <laughs> I don't, I don't think <laughs> go, go. We want to do this thing. No, that's okay. Um, well, tell us about this. So the churches, imagine you guys started it. You ended up starting it soon after that. I assume you moved. Yeah, uh, we why? moved. Yeah, yeah, we moved back here. There, there's much more of like how the church came right, to be. Right. Um, but we moved back January of 2013. Okay. And, and when so we how... mo- go ahead. We moved back January 2013, and when we first moved back, I actually had a job teaching as an adjunct professor at a college out here. Okay. And so I was like, cool, like, I'm going to be teaching out here. My wife had finished grad school where she was a marriage and family therapist. She did all of her hours, but she still had to spend like six months or so studying for her exam to pass. It's kind of like the bar for lawyers. 
Mm-hmm. And so our first six months here, our approach was like one, it was some time to just reconnect and hang out and just cruise here. And I was teaching and she was studying. But I think our big thing coming out was from the very beginning, we just asked this larger question of what does it look like for us to be present wherever people are, specifically in this neighborhood, but really like in the city as a whole. And so that is kind of how we began. We're just like, we are people that say yes to invitations if people invite us places. And we were also knowing we just were not going to, you know, establish or create a community where we were expecting people to come to where we were and we were going to go where they were. And so we kind of just had this open-ended, we didn't have a set like we're going to be here and then nine months later we're going to start in our home and then we're going to do this. It was more of an open-ended, this is the bigger picture of where this is heading, you know, starting this new community, starting this church, and we knew that. And so we kind of just, you know, there's that blend of like things happening organically while you're putting together some order of just moving forward with that. So that was our, that was like the heart when we first moved. So how long have you guys been kind of quote unquote up and running? I won't say when did the church start because I know a church starts before the gatherings. But how long have you been up and running with the the gathering you guys do on Yeah, we, so when we came back in January, we've had our first gathering in our home on a Sunday night in July of that year. So it was like six or seven months later. And I want to say it's probably like, at that point we were like, we could probably have like 15, 20 people come through here. And that would be pretty awesome for us to do that. And you know, one of the ways we tell the stories, like when JR and them at V3 ask us to come out and tell some of the stories of Imagine, is we have this we have this talk we do with them called 40 Answers in Fashion Shows. And that's basically how we started the community where we basically met the first people because we got invited by one person to this huge birthday party up in Makaha, which is like on Oahu's west side. And we only knew one person there, but my wife and I, being the type of people we are, we're like, cool, like, let's go and we'll hang out. And that one birthday party, which was in March, after a few months we moved here, foreshadowed the entire feature of the church. Because hmm. I can look back to that and be like, there was probably over 10 people there that day that would end up being a part of Imagine. And it was really reflective of the broader creative, entrepreneurial, freelancing, artistic community of people that make up the neighborhood of where our church is now. So it was like that party happened and we met a few people. Within a couple months, it was like this person invites us to this beer garden to hang out with them. And then they're like, hey, I'm having a fashion show on Sunday night if you want to come. Then we have this event. And like it was through that process we began to like slowly be woven into like the fabric of that community of people, but that community of people that really reflect the sort of heart and soul of the neighborhood uh, where our church is now. Well, t- talk about that then. Talk about the talk about the neighborhood itself, because most of the time when I talk to somebody, uh, if they're in the continuous 48 and I know what city they're in, I feel like I have at least a somewhat limited but somewhat of an idea of what the culture right, and right. the context of their place is. But when you say Honolulu, I was there when I was in fourth grade, which was a long time ago. So I have no concept, and I'm sure many people listening have no concept for what's the what's the culture, you know, like what are you, is it a religious culture? Is it a very post-religious, just what's the culture of Honolulu that you're in that you're trying to engage? Well, specifically where we are, we're in a neighborhood called Kaka'ako in Honolulu. And I won't expect you or anybody else to be able to pronounce that after three minutes of me saying that. 
But where we are, like this neighborhood of Kakaako is actually like Kakaako proper is nine blocks. And Kakaako is just on the south side of downtown. So it's like Chinatown, downtown, us. Then we go in a ward and an Alamoana, then Waikiki, which is like the sort of famous like touristy right. spot where people know of. Yeah. That's where I was. Yeah. And where we are would be like comparable to like the arts district in LA. So in our neighborhood, it's interesting. Our neighborhood has one of the biggest street art festivals in the entire world. And it's in our neighborhood. So basically, I mean, it actually was just two weeks ago. It's called Pow Wow Hawaii. And so, I mean, they, they're bringing in like genuinely the best street artists from the world to fill walls and canvases and buildings in our neighborhood. So the neighborhood itself is almost like an art gallery because of how much street art there is. Like it's actually an amazing, very unique place to even walk through because of how much art there is on the walls. And so I think where we are, I tell people like, Kaka'ako is in many ways like a thin slice of the culture that is going to continue to get bigger for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So it's like all of the city's resources are going into our neighborhood right now to build it up. So it would look like other neighborhoods you would see growing where there's luxury condos growing up and small businesses popping up everywhere and all kinds of different housing units and lofts and artists and there's issues of gentrification and people being pushed out so you would be you would recognize a lot of the same dynamics you would see in the urban core of other cities it's just you have this really interesting neighborhood driven by a lot of younger creatives artists entrepreneurs freelancers people in business and yet it's also like two minutes from some of the best surf and like most beautiful beaches out here too. Right. So Kaka'ako like self-defines as urban island culture. So to me, that's actually one of the reasons why my wife and I were so drawn to it. Like knowing the plans for the future is like it has everything that we want in a city in terms of art and culture and energy and people. And yet it's two minutes from the places we surf all the time and the beaches like we want to be at. So so what kind of, I mean, a little bit I understand the question I'm about to ask you, which was when I came to Austin, um, there was a suspicion of us because we were mm -hmm. outsiders coming into Austin and everybody wants to move to Austin. And it, even though it's the heart of Texas and super friendly anyway, there's still just a little bit of this suspicion of somebody new and an outsider and will they last? <clears throat> how much is that present in Honolulu and how much did you experience that? I mean, it sounds like you're making bffs immediately how, how i mean do bffs right away <laughs> um i think you know when i was at when i was at fuller like one of the professors there is a guy named ryan bolger yeah yeah and he's like in some ways like one of the closest things fuller has to like a sociologist and he's a he's a super uh bright guy and when he knew i was moving out there he said he's like kev i think that hawaii is probably one of the most complex places culturally I've ever seen. And he says that because of the, like the, you know, the ancient history of the Hawaiians really isn't that old before like Western contact. So you still have such a strong presence of the, the Hawaiian heritage of the people, of the practices, of the rituals. You have a very unique and strange form of colonialism that happened here. You have a local culture. That's a mix of so many different cultures. And so like coming here, one, I'm like, if you, have a hard time navigating 
cultural complexities, you know, uh, racial complexities, economic complexities, and all the things that come in. Like, it's a it's an easy place to make a fool of yourself, yeah. and it can be a challenging place to be woven in and to make those BFFs like you're talking about that are so important. And like I tell people, like to be honest, like even though my wife is from Los Angeles, my wife is is Vietnamese, and because we're in the sun so much, my wife is like a lot she's pretty tanned and like pretty dark and i tell people just visually the way it looks i would not have started the church here the way i did if my wife was white sure yeah i just would not have done that it was just visually what it communicates because it's so connected to entire histories so i'm like me coming into these places like i'm definitely aware and sensitive and I've navigated a lot of very intercultural, multiracial spaces in my life as a whole. And I think a lot of that has prepared me to be present with people here with the unique culture that's in place. So, you know, there's there's a definitely a big suspicion of local people towards Haoli's, which is like what white people are called here in general. So, no, there's a lot of navigating of that when you when you're when you're here. Yeah, even as we're talking about that, I'm remembering. I, I don't know why I didn't. This didn't occur to me earlier in the conversation, but uh, reading "Unfamiliar Fishes" a few years ago by Sarah Vowell, which just mm-hmm. talks about the a uh, little bit of the dark history of missionaries coming to oh, yeah. you know, Honolulu centuries ago. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So all that being said, getting some of that context, um, what does what does Imagine look like in terms of sounds like you're in a younger neighborhood for the most part. Is yeah. the church pretty young? And what's what's the congregation look like? And uh, just with that, what is, what's, what's uh, like, how does the sermon fit into the life of the congregation? Yeah, well, my wife and I are both 32, and we're like the old ones in the church. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Imagine is like primary, primarily, I would say like 90%, maybe more millennials. But then we have a we have an interesting handful of baby boomers as well, and a part of that was just practical. We're like we're in our third year, like starting right now, of like being in a public space for worship, and that we we just moved from night times to morning. So for the first two years, we met at seven p.m. on Sunday nights, and so one I'm like with with no childcare, so I'm like if you are having to get up and get kids to bed and get them up, like you're just not gonna come. And, and that's okay, and we understand that right now. But now, I think with where we are, one of the things we're recognizing right now is the things that got us to the first three years that were necessary are not the same things that are going to get us to the next three. And so as we've made some transitions, we've mo- we actually just moved to the mornings at the beginning of this year, which is a huge change for us. So I think Imagine is definitely has, has a strong presence of unchurched people. It has a strong presence of, you know, the sort of de-churched, maybe they were a part of church at some point and moved on. You know, some just because they just, for reasons, they just stopped going almost like unconsciously. But some is more like intentional, like we have basically transcended and moved beyond this now, but they're finding their way back. So at any moment, even on Sundays or in other spaces we have, there's always the assumption of like, there's always non-Christians. There's always people that are that you can't take for granted. They know the stories, you know, they don't know Abraham and Moses. They don't know those stories at all. So for us, it's always a very mixed. This is new or people are returning. And yeah, I'd say that's the the unchurched and the de-churched is a strong like representation of who's at Imagine. 
So what is that? How does that shape your preaching? Like, like, do you feel like you have to have a big education component to it or do you just, how does that work? Well, I think it's funny, especially early on when we were in our house, I felt like every sermon I did, I could end it by being like, this is what this means for you. And then this is what this means for you. Cause people were in such yeah. different places. And I think one of the ways that really shapes how I form things, how I think about things is I'm always trying to take this ancient story and show how it is still flowing into our, into and through our lives today and how the beauty, the truth, and the goodness of the scriptures are still being expressed, reflected, are partially present in all different kinds of everyday places that people see. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that intertextuality of this story and now and what's happening culturally and artistically or in design and back to the story, there's always this movement between worlds that I want people to see. So it all starts to blend together as one thing for them. All right. Well, so all of that and jumping off from there, let's talk about you. I mean, you've listened to the podcast, so you know, these questions are coming, but uh, I'm looking at your podcast page and it looks like you kind of do a mix of some text-based stuff and some topical stuff and it looks like yesterday uh, we're going to give away what day we're recording here but it looks like yesterday you started into Lent so you're even doing some liturgical calendar stuff maybe not mm -hmm. necessarily lectionary so what is your what's your sermon planning process look like how far in advance do you go and how do you choose what kind of things to preach about yeah I mean for the first like I mean this is just in the nature of church planning and the specific way we did it you know, the, the gift and the, the burden and the weight of preaching has been primarily on me. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, been, I remember hearing uh, Gideon when he was on here saying like the time he grew the most as a preacher was when for two years he was preaching, I think not only at his church, but at a friend's church who had just passed or it, he was yeah. in some situation like that. And I heard that I'm like, that is very much how I felt about the first three years of Imagine, like in our home and in a public place. Cause before this, I want to say I preached like four times in my life, like five times maybe, you know, in, in like main gatherings. And yeah. so I really took that on the first few years where I was like, me having to do this each Sunday was just so huge for just shaping me and me like growing and evolving and changing quickly. And so when it comes to planning out the teaching, I think before when we were in our home or when we first moved into a public place, when there was less to organize and less, you know, less things for me to think about throughout the week, I could be further ahead. But like, say, for example, now we just started, we started a series in Lent called cliches and clutter. And it's like, what are we going to remove? What are we going to let go of? What are we going to clear out of the way so we can make room for the incoming of God and to experience the fullness of the resurrection of Christ? And so I just decided, let's clear out some of the Christian cliches and churchy phrases that maybe have been helpful at one time, maybe aren't true, maybe have just been overused. So let's remove some of those and allow more of the fullness of and beauty and truth of God to emerge. So that's just me thinking like, well, what gets in the way? And I think for some people, the reimagining and rethinking of those things is something they really connect with. So it's like I, one of the things, the topical stuff is I just love putting the the truth of scripture in a very deep conversation with the everyday life that people in our church and in our neighborhood are really experiencing. 
And so I'm always drawn to that just because I think it's fun and I love making those connections. And the first sermon series like we ever did when we moved into a public place was called Spirituality and Instagram. And it was searching for meaning in the midst of love, life, loneliness, and likes. And while I think there can be some sense of like novelty of like, yeah, that's clever and that's cool. But I'm like, but this new world of media actually is one of the primary experiences people are navigating right now and figuring out. That's why like one of the metaphors I used for that was like, we're all entering into a new world on a frontier and we all have no guides. Yeah. I'm like, so who's making up the rules? Nobody. But who's making up the rules? Everybody collectively without realizing it as we move forward. So yeah, I've probably chosen like, we've probably done mostly topical stuff. I always do something for Advent. I always do something for Lent and then Palm Sunday and Easter. But other than that, besides us doing the Book of James, which was a series called Spirit in Motion, you know, we've done stuff like we did the Spirituality and Instagram series. We did one called the DNA and Design of Imagine, which is basically like, you know, who we are, what the values are. So, I mean, that's mostly me and also my wife having conversations about where the community is right now. What's the next thing God's saying to us? You know, what what is really, what's the direction we're heading in and how do we help, you know, guide people there? Gotcha. So, yeah, I just happened to see, as I'm looking at it, the one uh, textual series you've done. <laughs> yeah. So so where then, are you full-time? You, you talked about teaching at a university. Are you full-time with the church now? No, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm full-time now. Okay. So where, uh, what is your process of even, like how far ahead are those ideas coming? I'm still bivocational. And so, mm -hmm. you know, because we decided to build a team of part-timers first, right? And so, um, th but that's one of the things that is a challenge bivocational that for me, it's been helpful to do textual and mm -hmm. lectionary is because the text is assigned for me. So I just have to enter into it. I find it harder when we have gaps where we might break away to go more thematic or topical mm -hmm. on some things, because I don't always have the time to think through those, right? It, it, sure, yeah. it, it almost takes more energy to imagine those forward. So mm -hmm. how does that, does that, do you find yourself in conversations in your neighborhood or in people with your congregation and getting ideas and trying to capture them real quick? Or how do those, how do those series come about? Yeah, there's definitely, I can have an idea for a series but it's definitely not completely put together. Like I'm putting it together as I move forward. So say, for example, even with this one, like Lent, you know, cliches and clutter, it was just, I think like last week or the week before I was just, I, th I, I can really sit down for like an intentional hour and be like, I could do a series on this and think about it. And I don't have every detail of it planned out, but I have the series, I have the heart of it and I have some ideas but then they just unfold as I go along. So with the cliches and clutter, I wrote on Facebook and I'm not like a big face. I'm not always on Facebook and I don't, I'm not always writing statuses, but I just put, here's, you know, I basically put a poll out there of like, I'm preparing this teaching for Imagine. What are some of the like biggest, like most churchy like phrases or cliches that like bother you or you think get in the way? And then 60 comments later, I was like, okay, so people have something to say about this. And sure. out of those 60 comments, you know, three or four were from my mom. So that's always interesting <laughs> when, when she gets on there too, responding to friends of mine. Yeah. Uh, but I, after hearing those 60 comments, I was like, well, I'm going to take, like, I'm going to, you know, some of these are basically the same thing, but a little different. But I just took five of those because we have like five Sundays and I think it's Palm Sunday and Easter. So I took those five and I'm like, okay, right now, starting even yesterday, 
I have five phrases I'm going to preach on, right? Kind of take apart, allow some fullness of God to emerge. But I don't, I did the first one, which was like yesterday, it was like this idea of like, what is God's will for my life? But the other phrase is like, when I really start preparing my teaching, probably tomorrow, I'm not even 100% set right now on which one of those phrases I'm going to use. Yeah. So it's like, I'll have an overall engine, I'll have a trajectory, but I'm definitely building it as I move forward. Just for the sake of like what you're saying with time and things I have to do, like I can't map out, or, or let's just say I don't map out a year. I'm like finishing a teaching and I'll probably figure out my next series like right before Easter. Sure. Or, yeah. So, so, so it's like, I have the engine, the idea and the heart of it, and I'm building it as it moves forward. That's a lot of times how I'm doing it. Uh, so do you have any, I mean, do you even have this collection of ideas you want to get to, or are you really just taking them one at a time as they come? In terms of like the phrases for this series? No, just like future series. Are you, you know, this one came up. Okay. Are, are there others you're going to circle back to, or you really just like, and don't hear judgment. I'm not, oh, I'm no, not no, asking no, this no, question yeah. with judgment, but you're like, don't you think about it more? Which, come on. <laughs> no, I don't mean it that way at all. But yeah, I'm curious if you already, like you say, you don't know what you're going to do after Easter. I'm wondering if it's like you have ideas and you don't know which one you have the most energy toward, or it just hasn't emerged yet. No, there's, I could say right now there's nothing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think, and that's always worked out for me where when I do sit down, like I can basically spend like an hour and a half away. Cause like where we are also is really close to the mountains. So there's a lot of little secret places I have. So I know as I'm moving towards the edge of a series of a moment, as we take this next step as a, as a church, I can, I feel confident just in how it's worked out spending an hour and a half away and I can come away with the next, you know, the next engine, the next series, even the next name for it that I'll build along the way again. Like that's how it's worked out so far for me for the most part. So the takeaway from this interview for everyone listening is... You can plan a sermon series in an hour. It's not that hard. Sermon prep is a lot easier when you're in Honolulu and you can go to the beach or the mountains within 30 minutes of each other. That's true. (laughs) Actually, right now, I'm I'm looking at mountains to my left, like where we live, that I can get to in 10 minutes and I can get to the beach two minutes from my house. So yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah. I, that, that had nothing to do with my sermons. Just want to let people know as they I, listen what I'm seeing. I can get fantastic tacos in only a few moments. You know, See, so and I, and I, I can't. I can't do that. <laughs> um, all right. So you you alluded to you know probably tomorrow when you settle in you know to to start working on next week's sermon. So let's talk about the the day to day of an actual sermon. Sounds like you typically start on Tuesday, but tell us what that process looks like. How you how you put a sermon together. Yeah, I have, I'm very set on the process in terms of like, I'm in a groove and I know because Fridays for my wife and I are are our Sabbath. So I'm like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I do this on Saturdays. I do this. And then, you know, preparing Sunday morning, like getting ready, I do that. And as long as I do that, I'm there. Like I'm comfortable with where I need to be. I feel good with the material. So those are spaces for me, each one of those, I'm like, each day there's specific things I need to get done. And as long as I do it, it's it's going to be in a good place when I get there. So almost, I mean, unless, unless there's exceptionally good waves that I know need to be surfed on a morning, which that does happen from time to time, there's very little that can pull me away from like the... 
so many enemies right now. <laughs> <laughs> or or else i'm making people who want to be friends who want to come out and like be a part of and contribute to the life of imagine sure, like it's gonna be both yeah. uh but yeah there's very little that will pull me away from these spaces where i definitely guard them and protect them and i'm pretty like i'm very good with the boundaries i have because for me i know my creative work happens in the morning you know you're up my core temp hasn't risen yet my heart rate's low I can settle in. I love like slow mornings and, and, and getting into the groove of that. So on a two, so usually I'm generally working on stuff from like nine to 11. So I'll put about an hour and a half to two hours, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning as okay. I move towards Saturday and things shift. So on Tuesday, it's text, commentaries, and things like that. And then maybe I might start getting into like certain books because I'm always like, here's my text. I'm working with commentaries. And then as I begin to, sometimes that'll just be all text and commentaries that day. But I'll usually during the process, pull out a stack of like five books because I'm like, oh, I remember that chapter and, you know, this Shane Hips book. I remember this or whatever it is. And so a Tuesday can be working with the text, working with commentary, language, cultural stuff maybe I might get into some specific chapters where I'm not reading new books, but I'm going back to the stuff I've highlighted. Cause I'm like, I remember chapter six here. So I might be referencing some of that. So, so you're not a guy who's like jotting down notes and all your books and cataloging it as much as you just, you remember what different books have. Yeah. I, I highlight everything I read no matter what. So all my books are highlighted and I'll just remember, Oh, in that chapter, I don't know exactly where it is or in one of the first few chapters of that book, there was this section he did on like the biomechanics of your, like the energy following your attention or something. That's a Shane hips from one of his books. So I'm like, Oh, I'm going to find that. Cause that could work here. Or this could be a part of it. That has something to say. So it's text and commentaries. And then if I start thinking about, well, which books I'm going to draw from where I'm really, for the most part, not reading new stuff from like, Oh, I need to read the first half of this new book. I'm like, referencing and going back to the stuff I've already read that I remembered might be able to no guarantee, but might be able to speak into this as well. Yeah. So yeah, that's Tuesdays. And for commentaries, like I am not the guy who built a big wall of commentaries like over my life. Cause I've never been, I never was on staff at a church before we did this. I've, I haven't been around like, churches in the sense where I was like always like hanging around or even like doing much preaching. So I just was always buying books, but not buying commentaries. And even though I have some commentaries, like I have no full sets, I kind of will buy some along the way, depending on the series. But what I realized is like on Google books, if I type in like Matthew commentary, one, they have almost all the commentaries I want to read. The hard part is like, let's say I'm doing Matthew like 12 something. This book might have that portion cut out because they don't show right. the whole thing. Right, but, right. but these three or four will have the full thing. So I'm looking for commentaries in some weeks. I'm like, dude, these three to four have so much good stuff. Or the three, a lot of the three to four I go to have that section cut out. And it makes it a little more difficult. And, and that's just a part of my process because I just don't have the the budget personally or in the church to be like i'm gonna buy an entire wall of commentaries right now yeah yeah yeah. and you're definitely it sounds like a book guy versus a uh uh like a bible software guy yeah besides like some online stuff like with the with languages that you can get to like i think it's like blue letter like bible hub or which is really basic but it's cool like stuff like that yeah i'm i'm not uh 
I don't, I don't, I actually don't use any Bible software. I had an old Mac, a friend of mine installed Logos on and basically made the whole thing freeze. I was like, I'm over it. <laughs> that, that was a long time ago though. Yeah. It takes a lot of resources. That's for sure. Yeah. It's a big library. Okay. So that's Tuesday, which is really a lot of study and making connections with like what others have said about the text. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Tuesday is, I remember the, really there's the only person who's ever like personally taught me anything about teaching like in a practical like day-to-day doing this with steve carter yeah and so when i was a part of rock harbor not on staff but i was a part of rock harbor in costa mesa for five years and steve was there for a while too we met when he first moved there and he was like hey he's like do you want to come like hang out with me on tuesday mornings like when i first prepare my teachings and i was like stoked i was like yeah that, that would be sick and then he basically was like on tuesdays all i do is inhale He's like, I'm inhaling everything. So I would go to like Vanguard or we would go to different libraries or we would go wherever, take different commentaries. And he's like, just write notes. He's like unedited, unfiltered. You're just inhaling and taking to begin with. And so that in some ways still shapes. And that's how I think about those Tuesdays where I'm taking in a lot, primarily commentaries, books and texts. And I'm just beginning to like take it all down. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, let me circle back to one more question then, which is we're talking about a single text. So even though you're doing topical, it sounds like you try to land on a primary text each week. Yeah, I will usually, you know, there's a movement of like there's a primary text and there's like one or two I will move towards later. But generally there's even even with like with this new series of cliches and clutter. Let's say if I sit down, like one of the cliches I'm going to talk about or phrase is like the idea of winning souls. And how that's just not my favorite phrase and to me can feel a little dehumanizing of that that idea. Well, like when I preach on that right now, I don't know what text I'm going to use. But as I sit with that question and think about why that makes people uncomfortable, what's sort of dangerous about that, in my own sort of biblical and theological imagination, things start firing off and I start searching and I'm like, oh, Somehow I'm going to come to a place where I'm like, I think that text, that one text probably speaks most directly or profoundly or uniquely to this. Then I'll start to like build on that. So it is still primarily working with like one text, even though I move towards a couple. Right, right. Okay. So yeah. that's, you're inhaling on Tuesday. What happens on Wednesday? Wednesday in the morning is sort of the, the fluid transition between commentaries, maybe going a little more, a little deeper into like the books and the chapters I have, but then it's transitioning into like cultural, artistic, social things that I think are connected with this right now. So I'm like, like a couple weeks ago when we're, I basically was saying your path is always bigger than your own path. So I'm like, your courage is about their courage. Like your bravery is about their bravery. You doing this is the very thing that opens them up to the, something like that. So that's kind of like the engine, like the heart of it. And then that was right after, uh, right after the Grammys. And Chance the Rapper had this performance that like so many people were writing about and responding to. And I'm familiar with his work. Uh, so and, and I love hip hop. So I'm actually, I actually know his stuff really well. So I'm like, oh, like that could work here. So I write that down. Chance the Rapper performance. I'm writing this all in Evernote, by the way. Gotcha. So yeah, I'm like, I, was, I didn't want to interrupt you. I was about to start asking that question, though. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I basically, Evernote's like the only organizing tool I use for the most part. Like, for me, everything's in Evernote. Like, notebooks, notes, 
I just word I don't like take the time to put tags on everything. It's just I find word searches. I can pretty much find anything I've ever written in there pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I have like one, this is all imagine like one Evernote note where I'm just inhaling like this line from this commentary, this question, this thought. Oh, then I'll write chance the rapid performance. Or as I, as I was building that sp- specific sermon, I had just finished or I was finishing this book called The Book of Joy, which is a book about Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And this week they had together in, in India. And so I'm like, they consistently as two people that are pretty light and joyful and free at the end of their life, despite all of the suffering they've gone through, a common theme that comes up for them is interbeing, interconnection, body of Christ, understanding this is bigger than you. So I'll write down like, oh, book of joy, something about this. So on Wednesday, it's this transition of, I might go, I'm going back to the text. I might go back to a commentary, although I, I probably won't at that point. But now it's like, I'm starting to put the two in conversation. I'm putting the ancient story in a conversation with like where we are in history and where we are specifically in our culture right now. So that Wednesday is like, it's not rigid, but that's kind of like the bigger picture of what's happening on a Wednesday for those two hours. I'm researching this story. I remember that. I remember this story. I remember this film. I remember this song. I remember listening to this podcast and this person told this. So it's all putting those two together. That's how it feels. Yeah. 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 So then, uh, and I should say, so it is all of this, everything that you grabbed on Tuesday and now everything that you're working out on Wednesday, this is all in just one big Evernote note. Yeah, this is all just an Evernote. <clears throat> all right. So okay. I'm just, it's just all notes as if like I had, like when Steve and I were doing it, when he first showed me, I think we were probably, we might've been doing it freehand actually, or maybe, maybe we were writing it down, but it was all just like one note of like, I'm just writing as much as I can into this note where like a lot of it won't get used. Like that line won't get used, but it might like that story I thought of might not get used or, or it could. And so I'm just writing a bunch of stuff down all, anything I think speaks to this. Yeah. It's all going into one thing just like sequentially. Gotcha. Okay. So then uh, on to Thursday. Thursday for me is like where like sort of that interesting, like little magic happens of how things come together and like, this is another thing I want to say where like, like what you said, I don't want people to be more angry when I tell them what my process looks like on a Thursday, but I just have to be honest about how I do things. <laughs> and so oh, that, man. this, <laughs> this, 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 this was, uh, this was also something I learned from Steve where at this point, sometimes on a Wednesday afternoon, if, if I have the space for some reason, but usually on a Thursday morning, I now have this Evernote filled with notes and lines and this story and this personal story I remember or uh, or, or, or certain lines I've, I've wrote down verbatim, like from a commentary, all these different things. And now I actually will take a stack of note cards, like five by seven note cards if I have them. If not, then I just tear out pages from a journal and cut them into like little rectangles basically. And... I'm just writing down on there like some of the main ideas, themes, phrases, quotes. Uh, so I'm writing individual ones on the cards. And what I've realized is, because at, at this point, leading up to a Thursday, I have like an engine, like an energy source, like a pulse. Like I have a sense of what this is. 
I don't have a clear path because that doesn't come till Thursday. But I just know this is all a thing and it's connected and it's moving forward. And I never worry about it before that, whether it's going to come together. I'm just like, this is all heading into a specific place. And then on Thursday, when I write all these different things down, I just lay it. And it could be anywhere from 12 to like 25-ish maybe, like something like that. Like, And here, I'm going to pull something up. So I have examples where like for one week, I think this was, I was talking about the tyranny of they and how when you're on a new path, those people, whoever they are, are the people that can be a force that keep us from moving forward. So on one note, it just says, everybody's been given a script and then all of a sudden you're not following it. Or this one says story of an actor going off script and it says Zoolander because they're one of the, one of his like good lines in there. He, he blanked and said the wrong thing or he said the same thing twice, but it stayed in the movie. So I'm like, sometimes the best things in your life come when you go off script. Then it just says a couple of the other squares are baseball storytelling bacon. That's when I told my baseball coach in high school, like I didn't want to play baseball anymore. Or it says just tyranny of they in quotes. I'm like, oh, I'm going to like talk about, you know, explain what the tyranny of they is. One says crab bucket syndrome. One has a text, Mark 321. One says religion, reputation, and relatives, the things that will keep you from like being able to move forward. So they're all, one could be a quote. It could be a story. It could be a text. It could be anything on these squares. And once I lay all these squares out, I just start moving them together. Like this is connected to that somehow. Like if this stays in, now all those might not stay. But if this stays, these two are a part of this. This is a part of that. This is a part of it. And then after, like I don't know how long. From the moment I write those down and put it together, it's probably like 30 minutes. But when I do that, I'll put them all together. And then right when that happens, I'm like, I see it. Like there's the path. Like pretty much every time I've done that, I'm like, this is the movements. You know, my sermons usually have like three main movements. And so I just see it, I put them in order. I'm like, there's the path. And then once I see it, I'll write down on another card, like one, two, three, which are like the main movements. So it's like this, this is bigger than you. This is like beyond you or something like that. And once I have that, I'll take a picture of all that. And I just throw the cards away because I just, you know, put it in my phone. And then instead of like... Uh, no, I'll take a picture like on my iPhone. Yeah. Okay. Cause like, you know, I, I laid the cards out. Yeah. So I'll just take a picture on my phone and just save it. I don't even put it in Evernote. So I'll just like leave it on my phone. And then I think it's the moment where a lot of people would sit down to write, like, you know, some of like develop a little bit of those ideas, like start to kind of like fill out. Cause right there I have basically an outline. And then when you start to fill it in, when other people sit down to write, I'm assuming I go take a long walk at the beach. The anger. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take like, it's probably like a, a walk that's like a mile and a half or two miles. I'm not, I can kind of gauge that because I usually will walk that far and like run back when I'm done. Um, but for me, the reason why I do that is not just because it, not just because the tan aspect of it, you know, from the walk, but when I sit down at a computer to write, it feels like the room's like contracting a little bit. Like it feels a little like restricting for me where it's almost like the walls close in. There's a little, it feels more narrow and small for me. And it's just like, I'm more like locked in 
and I, like, I don't, it's, it's weirder for me to like talk out loud if I'm just sitting down at a computer. But when I go walk outside by myself, it's like that, that room that was contracting feels like there was like a release valve and it like opened up and like my imagination opens up with it as this comes together. And yeah. so when I'm walking, I'm, I'm doing the same thing because now as I'm walking, I will start like basically like writing and putting together my sermon just in the notes app uh, on my, on my, on my iPhone. So then I'll just make a new note and I just start like filling it in and I just start writing where like if the first section is, you know, most people are following a script. I might say we all begin by following scripts. Here's the people who's given us this script. Here's what a script is. Then the next thing is like, oh, I remember that I've seen some lists of some of the best scenes from movies have come when people have gone off script. So I'm like, oh, like that feels like that's an intro basically. And I'll develop it more further, but like the intro is like we're all on script, but sometimes what's important is when we go off script. And so I'll kind of write down like two to three sentences here, or I might just write down Zoolander going off script. And like, that's basically the intro. And then I start developing the main points and it's like text, maybe a few sentences explanation. Then this moves to like this story. So as I'm, as I'm going, I am writing. So I'll kind of walk and sometimes I have to stop just to like write. So I'm kind of, I'm filling it in like other people. I just do it walking because it feels a little more light and like I can play with it more and my imagination's like loosened up. So that kind of process, which I think is like similar to people like writing the sermon is I go on a long walk and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're not the, so uh, I had a couple years ago, Thomas McKenzie, who does something really similar. He's walking around neighborhoods in Nashville. It's not nearly as glamorous Mm. as the beach, but yeah, he, every Saturday night he would take all his ideas and he would just go on a walk, rain or shine, until he's got all of the pieces worked out. So we'll count yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I appreciate that. And, so yeah, but, that's. But you're just tapping away with your thumbs as you're walking on your phone. Sounds. Yeah, like. I'm just walking, yeah. and then sometimes I'm writing as I'm walking. But sometimes if I really want to, like, I'll just need to sit down. Even sometimes with the sun too, because the glare, I need to like we'll sit down and need to find somewhere to write better. But yeah, at that point, like I usually will have a clear sense of the intro. I well, the the middle section, I'll be like, I have the text. I'll probably tell this story. Here's sometimes I'll take the time to really craft two to three important sentences, and that's some of the refining work later. I'll go back and I'm like this transitional. Like that's when I'll take the time to write a very concise, tight, potent two to three, four sentences, because I feel like I can say this in that if it's done well. Probably a phrase to like wrap up that part, you know, because I love just working with words and having one phrase that kind of holds it together. And, but sometimes when I'm going, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to explain. Then I'm like, I need a story here. I don't have one yet, but I'll just like put an asterisk and put story. Like I'm going to find one soon. I'm going to figure it out. But right now I don't have it, but I'll trust I'll find it. But I'm not going to figure out when I'm walking. So I'm just like, cool, story. And then the conclusion at that point, the conclusion's still pretty open-ended where I might be like finishing with this text, here's a story that might work, and rant about how we want precise information, but God actually gives us imagination. Like something like that. So that will turn into a whole rant at the end that I'm going to end with. So I have a pretty, like after a Thursday, I'm like, I know what this is. Yeah. Like I, I have the main movements. And I realized where this didn't actually happen intentionally But as I was reflecting on my own process over the past few years, I realized I was like, wow, I basically structure my sermons the exact same every time. 
And I realized the way I did it was it goes every single time it went from why to how to what. Why this matters, sort of what this is, but how it works. And then you land with like what this means about our world. Like every single time I was like, the why is like the salty that provokes the thirst that actually means what I'm saying matters. So you can receive it and drink it in. So the intro is always some sort of salty provoking me letting everybody know where I'm going from here. We all need to hear this because this is, speaks to some of the deepest parts of what it means to be human. This is showing us what it means to follow Jesus, to be people of compassion or whatever it is. So it was always why this matters and then how this works. And in the end, like what this means for our world. So I was like, wow, like I really structure my sermons the same every time. And I've sometimes will consciously change that, but I realize that's kind of how I think about things. That's how it works. Yeah. I, I mean, I had the same experience where I realized later that there was a structure I'd kind of settled into and it's, it's helpful to just know it, uh, when when you're doing a process like you're talking about where you just know if you do these steps check these boxes every week that something starts to happen um so it i don't have the beach i don't have the walks but it's interesting how i i have i, I can relate to a lot of what you're talking about because just putting the pieces in place and then working your way through them each time the sermon emerges yeah and because you see people like because there's only so many beaches people go to like i tell people in church i'm like if you or any of your friends see me <laughs> by myself talking to myself i'm doing a thing just please let people know in case they ever tell you that like there's work that's happening there i'm not like out of control or anything yeah i see him all the time he's just out wandering around muttering to himself i don't know, I don't know yeah no i feel i feel bad for my neighbors because sometimes on saturdays uh like saturday night it's it's like a walk too as i'm like refining things but there's a park right around the corner from my house and it's like a circle and i will actually walk in a circle on like the edge of the curb talking to myself so i'm like my neighbors are like this guy comes out here every saturday night walks in circles on the curb like on a line talking to himself so i i think there's all kinds of weird myths and legends about people in our neighborhood who have like really concerned for like my presence there well and that so you just you just went there which was we haven't really gotten to saturday because thursday's that walk but you talked about crafting sentences and all that does that is some of that what happens on thursday finding those stories I'm sorry. No, I'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So on Thursday, I'm like, got the path. I feel good about it. I'm like, sometimes I got to find a couple stories. I might have to like, I always have to like really refine and and create the conclusion and like kind of how I'm really going to tie it together. But on Saturday, it's, I'll usually now, where my process actually changed recently because we moved from night times to mornings. So that's a huge game changer. Yeah. We had a we, we we had a daughter, our first daughter, four months ago, and we moved from night times to morning. So things have changed Ooh, recently. <laughs> yeah, man, it's 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 been cool, man. It's been awesome. But I realized I don't change what I do; I just change when I do it. And so I feel like in some ways I'm still adjusting to that, like when I'm you know doing the rituals I need to do to get to where I need to be. So on Saturday mornings now, I'll usually wake up and actually and start to build like the keynote. I use keynote for slides. And I, I'm like pretty like, especially with, with a community like ours, when there's so many creatives and artists, it's a very visual community. And so I definitely take time to build images and the visual like experience of it. And so for us, I think that's really important for the church and for the sermon is the visual nature of it. So on Saturday mornings, I'll wake up, start to get a bunch of images, start to put the slides together and kind of put together some of the quotes And then I'll go for another walk on a Saturday morning, usually. So I'll go for a walk and 
finish some of the parts, uh, fill in some of the parts, refine some of the parts. At different points on a Saturday, then I might sit down at the computer after that at some point and like really work out and really like I'm pretty, I spend quite a bit of energy on eliminating things. That's a good I'm practice. Like, yeah, I'm like, this is good, but this just actually isn't necessary here. Even sometimes on a Sunday morning when, when we're sound checking and I'm like kind of going over teaching stuff in my head or I might go up upstairs to this place where we are, I will be like this. I will cut out like a whole chunk because I think about the sermon in chunks. I'm like, I'll cut out this whole chunk right here because I'm like, it just feels it just feels like too much. It's not that it's not good. And it actually, for the people who want to tease out every detail of this, yes, this would be organically a part of the conversation. It just doesn't need to be for what we're doing here for the sermon. And so I'm pretty like adamant about eliminating and cutting things out. Cause I'm like, I remember listening to a podcast that Dana Carvey was on like a, a while ago. And he was saying how at SNL, he would intuitively, even when other people are writing some of the jokes for him when he's doing characters, in the moment he would cut jokes short, leave out lines on purpose or cut entire like kind of like transitional moments. Cause he's like, it just felt too wordy and it felt like too much. And he said, if there was ever a joke or a section, I felt like I was just trying to get through, it was a problem. And so for me, that's sort of a guiding thing. Like if there's a big old section, I'm like, oh, there's this good part and I just have to get through like this. And it feels like an exam. I'm like trying to get through. I'm like, that needs to change. Cause if I feel that, then people might feel that too. Right. If I'm feeling like that, then to me, it's just getting in the way. So on Saturday, I'm also doing quite a bit of like, I'm adding stuff. But a lot of what I'm adding is this section that could be longer was just turned into like a really strong four to five sentence, like chunk paragraph after that story that enables me to transition well. So on Saturday, there's another walk, some time with the slides. Now, actually, when I write those sentences, I will sit down and refine because that's when I'm really like crafting a few like transitional moments, sentences, paragraphs that I think are really important. And on Saturday night, usually I'll go for another like 45 minute walk or so. Like the one I was telling you when I'm walking in circles in the, in the, in the park right. on Saturday, that's, I'm like, I know where I'm at. And now I'll wake up early on a Sunday. I wake up like at five 30. We meet at 10 o'clock now on Sundays. So I'll wake up early I'll go to a park right near my house, which is a really cool place where I can see the sunrise. And I'll be up there for 45 minutes to an hour, do my teaching thing one more time, go through it, talking out loud, you know, by myself there. Uh, and then come back and that's it. I'm pretty much ready. Yeah. Well, nice. I mean, I, I am still curious why you're going to a park uh, on Saturday when you can go to the beach, but maybe yeah, change well, is a good thing yeah that was that was more like time purposes because i'm like you know i'm at home with my wife and especially with our new daughter i'm chilling so i'm like we have a cool park where i can basically like start from my house walk around the corner walk around the park a few times and come back and that could be like 40 minutes and at that point i'm like that's good you know i don't yeah. need to stretch it out too much more well that's good i, I appreciate you working through that whole process i know some people yeah. it, it's harder to find it uh, obviously you have i like how you've worked that out what what are some what are some resources for you that have helped you you know with with limited training it sounds like you had for preaching what are some resources that have helped shape you as a preacher besides hanging out with steve carter 
Um, like books that specifically speak to preaching or like, like anything that kind of like feels anything. like shakes sort of thing. Yeah. Hmm. I had a, a professor in grad school named Ralph C. Watkins, and he was the head of the black theology department at Fuller in the African-American church studies department before he moved to Columbia theological seminary in Atlanta. And he, he was truly like spellbinding. Like this dude, I could like be in those once a week classes for three hours and just listen to him just go off for three hours and pretty much be in tune the whole time. And he was this interesting blend of like Black Panther, traditional preacher and like stand up comic. And just the way he held together a room and he's and he's just a brilliant dude. And he's now thankfully, I'm, you know, I'm very thankful for that has become a friend of mine as well. But I think being around him was really formative, even though he wasn't preaching per se. I mean, he was the way he, the way he kind of did things together. And so I think in some ways that some unique resources and people that have shaped me was when I was at Fuller, my focus of studies was basically like black theology and womanist theology. And for people who aren't familiar with womanist theology, it's theology being done specifically out of the experience of black women, primarily in the United States of America. And so that black prophetic Christian tradition in the U.S. has played a huge role in shaping my theological and cultural imagination, but also sort of my energy and my vibe when I teach and preach and do things like that as well. Because those are a lot of the voices that are in me that are still speaking through me. Hmm. And also like growing up in L.A. as immersed in hip hop as I was there's still like this rhythmic i remember when steve actually did this like greenhouse thing where he was letting some kids like kind of learn how to preach and it was just like to each other when i first was doing it he was like when you speak it's almost like you're like a beat poet that like moves forward with like these like rhythms and snaps and you know i'd actually had to learn some about pacing because it was almost all in a flow but for me, like that energy and that vibe that I that I picked up along the way in my experience in hip hop culture, being shaped by those traditions, I still think speaks through me. Because one of the things I love doing, and I feel like some of my writing does that, but um, but some of the the way I speak does that, where it's I'm wanting to blur the lines between prose and poetry, between making points and offering metaphors and symbols. Because to me, those are all different things when used in the right moment that can open a person up and prepare them to receive this unique and good thing God has for them in a, in a special way. And different moments require different things. So I just think music and poetry and especially the, the black cultural tradition in the U.S. has had a, had, a, had a huge, huge influence on me. And now when it comes to resources... I really don't have any specific books on preaching that have really shaped me. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I would read some in grad school or do different things, but I think the people who inspire me are like, to me, stand up comics are the most, some of the most amazing entertainers in the world for an individual to be on a stage in front of people and to take them on a journey, make them laugh, make them feel things, make them go places within themselves when it's just them without visuals or music for the most part. I think stand-ups and just their their mastery of pacing and tones, and they consistently show me where it's not only what you say, but it's how you say it and when you say it and 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 
and how you look at people and how you manage energy in a room. So I think stand-ups and people giving speeches definitely are people I'm always learning from. Uh, I think when it comes to resources in terms of the practical part of my preaching, I think Brueggemann's work on imagination probably shakes the two of the ways that that comes out in my preaching is one, you know, that general thesis he has of like prophets being poets who imagine alternative futures and by doing so invite new social or personal possibilities in the present. I think that's one of the things I naturally do where I don't really offer people specific ways to apply things. I'm like, here's why this matters. Here's what this text is saying. Here's how it works. And in the end, when I'm like, here's what this is, I'm like, basically, here's what this means for you to be able to reimagine and imagine our world in a different way. And once you do that, it's not primarily about applying a principle. It's about allowing your entire life to be reoriented by this new world that you are seeing. And so I think one of those, the two things I land with a lot for people, I think if you look, if you listen to some of the teaching, two of the things I feel are, are at the heart of how I end up saying things and what people experience is I want people to simultaneously imagine a world with a profound sense of God's agency and a radical responsibility for their own lives. So I want them to imagine a world where God is not only present, but God is actively involved and engaged in the unfolding of the universe and creation as a whole, but also in their personal lives as it's connected to that. And at the same time, as they begin to trust and let go and realize that's actually happening, at the same time, the radical sense of responsibility is like, but no one's going to force this on you. This doesn't just happen. Like There is another path. But if you don't choose it, it's just not going to happen. So to me, it's like there is a different world and God is going to go with you into this new world, but he's not going to go for you. And I feel like I'm always leading people to the edge, showing them it can be different, but also making it very clear that like, I'm not going to do this for you. This sermon's not going to do this for you. Like on one level, I'm like, the sermon is just about you seeing the journey. And it is not you doing the journey. And we have to be very clear about that. This is about seeing the journey. It's not doing it. And that's like the interesting, I think, uh, humble and sometimes humiliating perhaps to the ego that wants to think the sermon they're giving has a lot more power than it really does to, to really form and shape people in deep ways. But it's that that paradox of this sermon is both something that I think is deeply important and a part of these gatherings we have. And I, and I, and I believe in the preached word and I personally love it and I love doing it. And also it's, it's not what you think it is. This isn't it. Like this is showing you the journey. This is offering you a little bit more clarity on the next step. It's maybe giving you some energy, but it's just not doing it. Like this is not doing the journey. And so I think Brueggemann stuff has really helped me see that. And I think another one of his things that really comes out of my preaching is this idea of like not creating crisis for people, but naming the crisis beneath the surface of our lives that already exists in, in metaphorical and poetic ways for them to realize that. So to me, oftentimes it's like you do a little bit of work with the text, you offer our own resistance, why this is hard for us. And then there's these interesting phrases of like, 
so it's is it either it's either fear or it's faith it's trust or it's this it's fidelity or it's or it's infidelity it's possibility it's you're, you're opening up or you're closing down i think i end up in places like that a lot because i'm like there's this world and there's that world and god's inviting you into this one but again like you are living at the edge. Like the bridge between these two worlds is your own courage, your own ability to let go, your own ability to move on or whatever it is. So I think his stuff on the practical level has been huge. Like that's actually one of the main reasons why Imagine is named Imagine. Hmm. It's because we felt like we were at a cultural edge, like sort of these green edges of the kingdom of God. And when you're standing at the edge, you don't... If you're at the center, you need people who are able to manage and sustain things. But when you were at the edge, you need people who can imagine and dream things into existence. A big part of, I think, cultural and pastoral leadership, when you feel like you're at the edge of a moment, which we're not always at the edge of a moment culturally, but right now in many ways, I think we are. I'm like, a big part of the role of leading is imagining what that uncreated, but I think desired future that God has for us is. And so that's why even imagine is us in our actual flesh and blood community, imagining and living out what perhaps the next couple steps are for what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus in this next cultural moment we find ourselves in. So even like that thinking goes into the name of imagine as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that language of imagine. That's what I actually call the last movement of my own sermon outline is mm. instead of application i call it imagination because it is it's really just absolutely to kind of project forward what this is supposed to mean rather than put the steps in place now sometimes it might be practical but it's it's still more you know imagination geared than steps geared right yeah exactly that's why like when i name the chunks of my sermons i'm like this is a story here's statistics this is this but then i would just write poetic rant and that's me blurring <laughs> and that's like how i end a lot where i'm like and now that we've done this and you've seen this and I named some of the resistance for you, because I feel like that's what I do a lot. I'm like, here's the good news. Here, let, me, let, me, let me stop for a second. Here's all the resistance you have to this. Here's a lot of the defense mechanisms you have in place that keep you from owning this part of yourself. Or here's some of the resistance you have from living with this kind of courage. Hey, we named these things. I get it. It is hard. You're right. It, you could get your heart broken. But now that we've established that, now there's the next poetic rant. But it's like, but we have to move forward. You know, yeah. so for me, that poetic rant is the imaginative act of, of, of dreaming of the new world. Yeah. That's good stuff. Well, if uh, we've hit our hour, but if, uh, if somebody wants to keep up with what's happening with you and with the church or maybe just like at Twitter, where if they want to ask you any questions, where can people find you online? All those places. Yeah. The main, to keep up with the church, it's imaginehi.org. So the church's website is imaginehi.org. I am actually on Twitter at just Kevin Sweeney and then the number one. So Kevin Sweeney one. And it's and, and also on Instagram, it's the same thing, Kevin Sweeney one. And you will see that I'm a lot more active on Instagram than I am on Twitter. Where when I was in grad school, I felt like you spent so much time alone. I was like always on Twitter, you know, like like building the revolution, like one tweet at a time with all my other friends in grad school. And... Then when I move out here and my life is primarily like as a practitioner on the ground and just to me, like the, the, where Instagram is culturally, I'm very active, consistently present on there. That's probably the best way to keep up with and see what's happening with me personally, even with Imagine as well. And 
there's also, which there's actually another context out here where I do basically preach sermons, although people don't realize they're sermons, where my wife and I and a group of friends started this creative collective for our neighborhood, which does have some people from Imagine, but it's not an Imagine initiative, and it's mostly not people from Imagine, and it's called The Uncommons. And so that's a once a month gathering basically for creatives and artists in our city to encourage them to keep going because the life of freelancers, artists uh, is a lot more challenging than a lot of people realize from a distance when it all just looks like a big party. Yeah. And so we have this once a month gathering for creatives and it's really just to encourage and inspire them and to remind them of how important the work they do is culturally. And we have basically like a liturgy there we do with them. And a part of it is I pretty much preach a sermon when I'm there. Like it's not the same kind of sermon I would preach, you know, at the church, but it is for the community, another inspiring, encouraging word for them. And so if people wanted to check that out, because that's actually probably besides imagine another like main sort of space for me, that's called the uncommons and that's at the uncommons hi.com. Nice. Uh, Is that anything like, is that connect, not connected to, but is it modeled after like the creative mornings that happen in a lot of cities? Are you familiar with that? You know what? I, I'm not, I think so. Yeah. Like there's something I remember seeing back in the day that in Costa Mesa and a few places it's called connecting things. Hmm, And so I would say, yeah, it's probably, it's probably similar because I think I've heard that, but I'm not extremely familiar, but I would assume it's very much like that. Yeah. From what I know about it. So that's the uncommonshi.com. Well, that's great. I'll look at that one. I wasn't familiar with that either from your stuff. Well, well, Kevin, thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. I know that, you know, because the time difference that we had to talk in the, you know, what's morning for you and you're probably itching to get out and hit the waves or something like that. Or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's actually been raining a little bit lately, but right now it's like probably 78 degrees and it's this pretty much mostly sunny outside right now. There you go. Well, I hope I hope we get to meet in person sometime soon, maybe even in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, no, I would love that. Actually, Austin is a city I really do want to visit. So whenever yeah. I get a chance to make that happen, I'll definitely hit you up. And I really, man, I really am so thankful to be a part of this because, I mean, I just, there is nothing like this. And so I think for me, even having the relational distance being out here from a lot of the people I you know, look to as reference points and respect and admire and people who have shaped me from a distance in ways they would never know. I mean, you creating this space, you've had a lot of those people on. So this actually has been a such a helpful resource for me. And, and it's it's been so huge. So I appreciate, I know the back end, all the stuff that goes along with it, along with pastoring, being bivocational. So no, the energy that you put into it, uh, the, the effects of it ripple out all the way across the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> all right. Well, out here. So I'm really, I'm thankful for that. Thanks for saying so. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. All right. Well, thanks, Kevin. Blessings to you. Thanks, Kevin, and thanks all of you for listening. You can, once again, support the podcast at patreon.com slash sermonsmith, or you can also obviously help spread the word Facebook, Twitter. You can find the podcast by doing doing a search for sermonsmith, all one word, on Facebook or on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash sermonsmith. Thanks, thanks everyone.